Hey, Kayla. Hey, Blake. We're back. And hey, listeners, we are back again. We're back for another episode of Under the Arch, uh, still a podcast where we explore the issues facing our communities and the people fighting to transform them. Uh, I am your host, Blake Strode, Executive Director of Arch City Defenders. And I am your other host, uh, Kayla Reed, Executive Director of Action St. Louis. And we have another really timely, um, important conversation lined up today. Um, You know, this is, I think we we made note in the last episode that uh, the, the episode we did with Whitney Benz and Sam Strauss was not sort of issue focused as a lot of our episodes are we're 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 back to that today um we're back on on one of the most i think salient political issues social political cultural issues um of this moment in st louis and and, in missouri and and that is the kind of and across the country yeah thank you and that's this really intense sustained um attack on queer rights generally and and trans rights and trans people in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we have seen over the last, you know, I'd say five years is really um, state legislatures start to understand their power and reach and are, are coordinating very aggressive attacks on, um, on marginalized communities, right? And so we talked about the attack on voting rights this uh, year, this season. We talked about, you know, the expansion of the carceral state through policies. And one way that we're seeing very coordinated, I mean, almost copy and paste legislation state to state is are really these um, anti-LGBTQ, anti-queer, anti-trans pieces of legislation um, that are being really uh, championed um, as one of the sort of cornerstones of this larger framework, which we talked about, this like anti-woke sentiment, right? This mm-hmm. um, in, in one of these ways. And so we're hearing it from presidential candidates that are running to governors. Um, Missouri's governor actually signed legislation that we're going to talk about. And we're seeing cities actually on the front lines of trying to create sanctuary and safety spaces for for communities that are impacted by these uh, horrible pieces of legislation. Um, so I'm, I think it's, I think as you mentioned, it's, it's a very important conversation. Um, and yeah, it, it is, it intersects with our work. It intersects with our personal lives, it intersects with people we love. Um, and, you know, I think I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think our listeners will benefit from it. Um, and I specifically think even for folks who as, as racial justice organizations, um, we are always at this intersection of trying to make sure we're talking about everything that's impacting our people. And we know that these mm-hmm. bills are, are certainly um, impacting uh, our community and, and we are in pride month, right? It is, it is, it is pride month. So it's a moment where we're like yeah. celebrating the brilliance and joy and c- celebrating the history, which is also grounded in resistance and that there's a mandate for us to be in that legacy right now as our communities are still under attack. Yeah, that I was full disclosure, listeners. I was thinking before this episode. You know, we've been talking about having this episode for a while, and we didn't plan it, plan no. it originally to to be recorded and released in Pride Month. But here we are, and sometimes the universe just knows knows what needs to happen. Yeah. Um, so we have truly an amazing one of the best guests that we could have for this conversation. 
Um, we are very, very excited to have them. And that is Shira Berkowitz. Um, I'm going to read their amazing bio. Uh, Shira Berkowitz serves as Promo's Senior Director of Public Policy and Advocacy, leading the statewide strategy for LGBTQ plus public policy, organizing and advocacy. They bring a range of experience having worked on statewide policy and advocacy campaigns as a social impact artist and as a social entrepreneur. They hold a Master of Fine Arts from Washington University of St. Louis and are dedicated to building spaces for people to grow in community while addressing civic and social challenges in our built environment. They're also a founding board member of Mak Tovu, a Jewish neighborhood center in the city, serving the board of directors for Jewish Found Federation of St. Louis and a founding member of MARSH, a queer bioculture laboratory and mutual aid hub. And one more, because I believe this is where they are right now, our founder of Camp Indigo Point, the first local residential summer camp for transgender expansive and LGBTQ plus youth. So as you can hear, uh, Shira just has so much free time. It was so easy for them to be here with us. No, I'm kidding. We really appreciate you, Shira, joining us yeah. today. We know you're super busy and welcome to Under the Arch. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And I, I am at Camp Indigo Point. Yeah, I would love to, maybe maybe we can come back to that at the end and we can have you do a little, um, give, give a description, a little pitch at Camp Indigo for folks listening in the future that don't know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds really, it right. sounds really, it sounds really cool. And I think, yeah. you know, we like to start every episode with just learning more about our guests. Um, so like, can you just speak to your your background and your journey into this current work that you're doing um, at Promo and throughout the community? Yeah, absolutely. I think my journey that led me to Promo is doing um, a lot of community organizing uh, in the in faith spaces in St. Louis. Um, I was working for Central Reform Congregation and really was prioritizing public health policy and advocacy, which is exactly as you talked, uh, an issue that impacts everybody, but very specifically the gamut of marginalized communities. Um, and working in uh, St. Louis, I think we have this really strong gift of organizers that come to a lot of tables and advocacy spaces together. And that's where I learned about promo and um, was really captivated by the work that they were doing in community and really appreciative that there was an opportunity to join the team. And working for Promo was really the impetus for founding Camp Indigo Point, um, specifically in a lot of the public policy spaces uh, in the capital. We have many, many consistent teams across the state that have been um, on the front lines of vocalizing their stories to elected leaders and find it very challenging and very um, disassociative. And so getting to know these kids over the past five or six years um, and the weight that they and their families carry really highlighted an opportunity for um, me and a team of friends to figure out like what can an, what can a haven look like for kids to put down this heaviness, this burden, the fact that their governments knowingly are against valuing who they are and how can they meet like-minded individuals. Uh, the impetus really being like, in rural parts of our country in Missouri and it's like kind of magical and miraculous what happened because we opened up this camp and kids from 26 states 
uh, are joining us for the second summer ever. Okay, so Shira, you heard a little bit um, of our, you know, we did a, a very quick kind of assessment of this moment and this kind of obsession, um, I would call it an obsession on the political right with um, trans people in particular and queer rights uh, across the country. And I'm curious, you know, how you would assess this moment as someone that's doing public policy advocacy. You know, I've, I've heard the term backlash used a lot in this space, um, you know, for probably a good 15 years from the, the early 2000s to kind of the mid 2010s, there was this narrative of progress around queer rights and public policy and visibility and culture. Uh, and it certainly seems like there's been a shift in the past several years. How do you assess that as someone that's working in this space? Um, I think you're spot on. They're, they're at the same time that I feel like there was significant policy progress, but societal progress that we made um, for having a lot of room to hold the identities of all LGBTQ plus people, um, policy less so than societally. But in that same trajectory of about a decade, there's been an even longer movement that's outside of uh, that progress that has been slowly and gradually building to um, devalue, to rename who LGBTQ people are as, as mentally ill, as not educated, not able to make decisions for their own um, bodily autonomy. And alongside a lot of that movement work was this underlying foundation of um, deeply anti-transgender uh, rhetoric and organizations that um, have, had, have, are at a moment of being very successful from their perspective um, because of the ability for them to insist on the hearts and minds of the majority of people in the U.S. that being transgender is not necessarily believable and uh, like a, a, a thing that we inherently know about who we are. And I think that it's like really mappable in the United States um, where this hate came from, um, but it really is a global moment right now um, where trans rights are being taken away in, in lots of countries on lots of different levels. So I think the detriment specifically like right now of um, policy change is happening that are taking away the rights of transgender individuals is even more harmful because of the permissiveness, expansiveness, and autonomy that our youngest generations feel in vocally and visually and um, like very knowingly leaning into who they are in their in their spaces in their communities in their peer groups. I appreciate you taking uh, that sort of into a global context here because I think this year, if we sort of thought of these attacks as a heat map, it's expanding really rapidly um, across the globe, and folks are feeling pretty overwhelmed by that reality. Uh, and I think there's one side of the coin that we're going to talk about on this podcast, which is like the political and policy realities of this. The other side that I think movement has really tried to put at the forefront is the vigilante violence, the interpersonal violence that we are seeing happening against queer and trans people in places like Missouri and all across the country. And even the attack on like pride um, representation and corporations like Target moving pride clothing out of their stores uh, for, quote, fear of safety for their employees. Right. But this sort of movement to really attack 
the very foundation of queer identity uh, and representation. And a lot of that could just feel overwhelming to our folks, right? It feels overwhelming to me, right? It feels overwhelming sort of every day. And we live in Missouri, which has been like a particular state in this movement. So can you just talk about Missouri um, and what's happened as it relates to this attack on queer and particularly trans communities? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on. Um, Over the past, I would say three years, this could have been the fourth, we saw this rise in hate through policy, um, which it, it was Uh, not just in Missouri, but in a lot of the southern states. And something that I think that was unique about Missouri is that we had a real opportunity to align the misunderstanding of many elected officials for why this matters to them or doesn't matter to them. You know, like, why is it an issue if trans youth play sports with their peers? Or why is it an issue if trans youth have access to gender-affirming care? And we could really meet politicians at that space of they don't really understand. Maybe they can uh, connect with um, a parent raising a trans kid in their district, or um, we could bring some folks to the Capitol and they could meet with them. And we were really able to stay abreast of the attacks turning into um, aggressive movement and policy. I think it's never really been, though, a strategy that we have only in Missouri to fight against. Um, and a- as it was for like two to three years in this past year, this global strategy that was against us, that was coming from uh, outside organizations, very large hate organizations um, that had uh, priorities to um, pass bills that restrict the rights for trans youth and criminalize parents of trans youth. Not only, not only like not manifested from inside of our general assembly, but our general assembly was swayed by it. And so even the elected leaders who we were able to find common ground on and who understood that whether it was like no lawmaker should have the right to tell a parent how what access to health care that they should have for their kid in the same way that they want, you know, like vaccines to be optional. Um, or not mandatory. We couldn't, we could have those conversations, we could have alignment and it didn't make any difference because um, the priority externally was this has to pass this year, has to pass this year in 11 states, has, Missouri is one of them. I, I think the weight of kind of knowing that we were in a position of having to harm reduce what passed, knowing that something was going to pass is part of that heaviness in the community of can I stay here? Do I have to leave? When is it going to affect me and be harmful enough for my family that we don't want to do this anymore? Or what do I do because like, don't have the resources to move or leave and this has to be stopped. And so the, the violence and the fear came into like sits is a very heavy brick in the community while the only real defense strategy that we had to play was to convince enough lawmakers to do the bare minimum harm. Yeah, I I definitely want to come back to what that harm reduction strategy looks like, what it has looked like, what what you foresee in that space. Um, Just to to stick for a second on the the kind of public policy developments, one of the things that I think has been really tough is just to to 
really keep track of like what is in play. And, you know, I say this as someone who like tries to follow public policy pretty closely. And like, it was just really hard because the the onslaught was like so overwhelming when it came to trans, trans related legislation. And um, I want to recommend to folks, there's this really great resource um, called translegislation.com that I went to before, before this recording so that I could have some, make sure that I had some sense of what had even happened. And, and it, it tracks um, anti-trans legislation all over the country. And some of the numbers are just, I mean, astounding. 556 bills in 2023 alone. And they also do a, a year-to-year comparison. And you can just see this like skyrocketing in 2023. And something like uh, 43 of those were just in Missouri. Um, and so I guess I, I want to check my understanding and, and make sure make sure that I'm tracking correctly in terms of like what, what actually moved, because I know a lot of stuff was introduced, but it, it, it appears to me that at the end of all of that, there really were these two focus areas that you just mentioned of, of um, healthcare, particularly gender-affirming healthcare for minors in Missouri and sports as the two kind of focus areas where um, legislators were successful in changing policy. Is that is that accurate in terms of what happened this year? Yeah, that's very accurate. Um, we had two more large of the so like we had 3,000 just under bills filed in Missouri alone. And like of those 57 bills are heading to the governor's desk to sign total. And some are like appropriations bills, budget bills. Um, but like knowing that number is n- like nobody can track it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and our lawmakers here kind of throw everything at the wall and they see what sticks. And it's a way of like anxiety driving the attack of this massive amount of overwhelm until we get to March and it gets a little bit narrower, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's certainly a destructive um, strategy on their part. Right. Um, So I think like of the big topics that we saw in, in policy uh, attacking our community this year was um, banning the access to transgender youth, also adults um, to gender affirming care uh, from the gamut of like mental health care intervention all the way up to surgery, uh, s- surgery gender affirming care. And in sports, it was how do we keep transgender girls from participating in sports with, with cisgender women? Mm-hmm. Um, and that bill actually became broader and broader and broader as the uh, session went on versus more narrow. Uh, which is what the healthcare bill had, and then we saw banning drag queen performances in public spaces, or, right. or or citing it as under the category of pornography. And then we saw, like, very specifically in all the education bills that um, intended to erase DEI and critical race theory from curriculum. A big piece of many of those bills was an additional, like, forced outing of. LGBTQ kids in classrooms. So if any student comes, brings up their gender, their sexuality to a teacher, to an administrator, or the concept of, that has to be told to their to the child's parents, which is an incredibly unsafe space to put many, many trans youth um, or LGBTQ youth. 
Um, so those four categories are what we traced um, actively, but but also had hearings on all of them often. Um, many different committees hearing every bill at once that all had s slight tweaks to them. Um, and it wasn't until about spring break where we could uh, really see the uh, bills, which bill sponsors were going to lead the policy through to the finish line. A lot of that has to do with how other states, how other pieces of policy in other states that are similar or the same are moving through other uh, general assemblies. So Nebraska's debate on uh, transgender affirming care that was going on at the same time as Missouri's really sparked lawmakers to follow up structure. So where we ended up was a very, in my opinion, harmful sports ban, um, but not life or death harmful, but, but very, very detrimental to youth and, and all transgender kids, all gender expansive kids, anyone who doesn't fit explicitly in uh, a binary cisgender category from kindergarten all the way through college cannot play sports on the team that aligns with who they are. Um, and it affects public schools, charter schools, and private schools. Um, so this is, we're gonna really see the effects in how uh, Mizzou handles this, being a, a member of the SEC, um, because they, part of the policies that they also cannot play against a team that allows transgender athletes to play on that team. So even in progressive states where they don't have this piece of policy, if, if the game happens in Missouri, the state risks its funding. Um, and then the gender affirming care ban, which is very dangerous and is forcing a lot of parents to have to make the decision of leaving the state, um, says that youth who are not already on a gender affirming plan as of August 28th will not have access to gender affirming medicine for four years. Um, and there's a full surgery ban under the age of 18. Um, no adults who are on Medicaid can use that Medicaid for um, gender-affirming care, and no incarcerated individuals have access to gender-affirming surgeries. Um, so it's a it's a bill that is couched as we're trying to protect youth, but we're also detrimentally harming adults. Um, so we've talked a little bit about it as being a forced detransition piece of policy, and, and it's terrible while it's not the bill that it started as, which is criminalizing parents for accessing gender-affirming care, mental health, or physical health. Um, it doesn't apply to everyone under the age of 26, which was an age bracket that a lot of the pieces of policy look at. Is that adulthood or is that still um, controllable by the government and um, strips all access to, to mental health care and physical health care under that age? So we've seen and impacts anybody who aids and abates assistance in anyone accessing gender-affirming care. So we're not there like Texas and Florida are, but we are certainly not helping trans youth, trans families, and a particular population of trans adults thrive in our, in our state. And we're saying the message that they shouldn't thrive here and they shouldn't live here because they can't have access to that life they need. I, I just feel like that's a very heavy that's a lot of information to hold and, and that reality is so, it's just really brutal and it's evil, you know? And I have seen the, I really don't like this word, but the resilience of, of these of these kids and these families um, and the dedication that they have 
to fight just beyond their own household, but for the future of our state, because, you know, what is a place where children, what is it, what do we become when we allow things like this to become law? Um, and it's so invasive and so um, just cruel, right? As, as young people are trying to live into this idea, this dream that they can be who they, they are um, without interference. And so thank you for explaining that, that journey from 3,000 bills to the ones that made it to Governor Parsons' desk, right? And his threat that if it didn't make it to his desk, he would call a special session. Um, yeah, and that's truly why we knew we were losing. Uh, honestly, we, if it wasn't the attorney general attack that was some of the worst legislation or order we've ever seen in our country yet, uh, we there was the threat that said to the conservative caucus in Missouri, if you don't pass this bills, I will call you back on more taxpayer dollars to to do that. And the fears was that Governor Parson could align with the same um, language and attack as Attorney General uh, Bailey. We don't have enough time to form the relationships to stop that kind of cruelty. Really is just... Um... It's so shameful and heartbreaking and also infuriating, as as you're both saying, to think about, I mean, the, the areas that you are describing are just so central to well-being, human thriving. You know, we talk about health care, talking about something so, so socializing. It's like youth sports. I mean, for so many of us, like that, that's such a critical development space as human beings, it's about more than just the sport. It's like you're taking away entire social spaces from people. Or you think about bathroom access. I mean, these are things that really go to the core of people's well-being, and the, the cruelty underlying it is, is sort of shocking. Um, so we're we're going to squeeze in a break, but I think on the other side of the break, where we want to go, is to try to unpack a little um, and maybe have you help us understand, Shira. Like, what? How do we understand? what the kind of theoretical framework around this, like what's happening, what is driving people to do these things. So I think we want to dive in there a little bit more on the other side of the break, but we're, we're going to squeeze in our music minute here. We will still have our wonderful guest, Shira Berkowitz, on the other side of this break. So hang with us. You are listening to Under the Arch. Wretched lifestyle gets revealed, it's gon' feel like Scorsese got to deal the cards Your brand is false, began was all non-legit and made a fake remarks The end is hard and you don't get to play your favorite part To Under the Arch. I uh, hope you enjoyed that STL Music Minute. That was a song called Wretched by 18 and Counting, and you can find um, all of 18 and Counting's music on streaming platforms. 
So we're going to dive back into this conversation. Um, and as, as I teed up before the break, um, I really want to kind of get into the into the why question, like, why are these people doing this now? Um, as, as we've said a couple of times, there's been this just huge spike in the last couple of years on really focused anti-trans attacks. And, um, you know, I know it's a big, broad, maybe kind of impossible question, but like, why, Shira, do you think that the, the political right has so seized on these issues and this population at this particular moment in time. And, and also, you know, that's kind of part one. And like, why is it taking this form, you know, of healthcare and bathrooms and sports? Like, do you have any sense of that? Um, I have theories. And I think in some of our national partners, like Promo is just one state org that has a co-partner in multiple state orgs so i think we work together to try to come up with where is this coming from and use uh, some of our partners experts in in data collection um, tracking that data over time and i think that where we're at is not only that um, lgbtq rights is a huge piece of the privacy rights puzzle it's where Mm privacy rights originated with trying to combat anti-sodomy laws pre-Roe v. Wade, um, but it's it's part of that toppling back down to control people who do not fall under particular extreme faith values. Um, and so I, I, that's one piece. I also think there's like a, a sense of freedom and liberation inside of the visibility of trans people rising in fame or just having that global visibility and it's a threatening piece to the again those extremist faith family values of of how can i live my life if these people are living their life very obviously misunderstanding but where like this fight started 40 50 years ago with organizations like focus on the family and heritage foundation creating a sense of what was permissible to teach in schools and balancing an argument in our country between um, parochial schools or homeschooling under parochial schools and public schooling and so there's been this division that has slowly been wedged into all of society about how do how do these parochial schools get the same funding as public schools and that narrative is like your kids are not safe in public schools because they teach things like sex education. They allow kids to have a sense of what their pronouns are as if that's the most terrifying thing or threatening thing ever. And to not teach revisionist histories, but to dive into the, the gruesome details and the truth behind not only like who America is or who, how societies have evolved, but also the global narrative. And so this, these three, four, like very large machine organizations that are driving uh, Christian fundamentalism or Christian extremism into mainstream policy has been rising up their own generation of youth to be our politicians and to take office and to, to, own that red badge of uh, conservative Republicanhood and 
they have driven a wedge in the idea of what is a Republican Party or what is a Democrat Party by, by you know, like we've said, like, you're not Republican enough if you're not in the conservative values. Um, and I think that they're like all of that coincided with Trump being in office and giving a sense of permissiveness to that hate. And so everyone who doesn't participate in politics in states specifically where the largest populations in those states are rural have lost the narrative of is there room to understand humanity versus do we just listen to what we're told and understand that is fact. And so we're not only arguing with politicians who are sometimes very wise and know what they're doing because their 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 base, their communities are telling them that they have to do something different because you know, trans people are a threat. Trans people are a threat to their religion, their familyhood, they, their, their way of understanding the authenticity of who we are as individuals, and that's fearful. And so I, there's, it's all rooted in fear, um, but it's with this very slow growth of a switch in power that also coincides with like having the perfectly aligned strategy on the opposite side. So, I mean, our our session this year we had planned to fight really aggressively with against the sports ban, which is where we left off. Um, last two last two sessions ago, um, and had a real strong understanding of why not the healthcare argument specifically in Missouri because of the physicians that are elected leaders being like the government cannot tell me what my licensure can tell me or what my professional licensing boards can tell me, um, and how we lost that was. Uh, Aaron Reed being somebody who was willing to put an affidavit of fear into words and send that up to the general uh, attorney general and the attorney general starting to sue businesses uh, and hospitals and our gender our two gender clinics. In the Can state. you explain who Aaron Reed is really quick for those who don't know? Ooh, she is. Um, she was a caseworker at our largest gender clinic in uh, Missouri and deeply got to know and care for almost every family that came into that clinic, whether they were seeking like physician guidance of like, like a pediatrician guidance all the way up to like, okay, my teenager is looking at gender affirming care. What are those steps? And she held the cases of all of those families. And then she decided, I, I don't know. She woke up one day and said like, this is wrong and I'm going to, make sure that all of those families are seen as child abusers and that that like narrative rose very fast up to the attorney general and while he was suing the gender clinics for malpractices also gave him time to write his own executive order that would come down on our community and though the weightiness of both of those attacks was kind of met with the leadership in the senate and in the house saying like well, if this is this is what our leader, our leadership is telling us to do. Then we have to we have to rise and match it, and we're going to have to solve this policy, not just in a temporary executive order or emergency rule. Um, That's really interesting. So you you attribute the the shift in thinking among some of the the Republican Missouri legislators on these health care questions to that 
particular intervention and testimonial from a kind of frontline worker that that told the worst possible version of what was happening in these gender affirming clinics. Yes, the worst possible false narrative. False, totally untrue. Um, And we never stopped hearing about Jamie Reed in every hearing that that we had on any stage of any bill. And in closed door meetings, we consistently heard Jamie Reed as fact, Um, which when an executive order and lawsuits are coming down to try to prove something at the same time that policy is moving and the target is unknown and unprovable, uh, it, it expedites, it expedited the fear, it expedited the process, and everybody was trying yeah. to solve together their one mistruth. Yeah. There's this sort of, um, I really appreciate you explaining that because there's this, there's this real dependency of the right to claim hysteria and organize around it and or or like leverage a moment to create hysteria and it's you know it's propaganda to their base and it's then it's it's articulated in these sort of like multi-pronged strategies um that really are about elevating the platform and profile of particular um leaders in this state right and also about this sort of like boy scout badge of conservatism that we are seeing happen across um you know, across the, the the country in these in these state legislatures, and also we're we're watching state legislatures wrestle with the the sort of um, the how 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 much power states actually have, right? In in with the Supreme Court that is going to overwhelmingly be pro state, we're starting to see them push the the sort of bounds of policies um, in in recent sessions, and and it just really makes me think about this uh, larger narrative of like anti, this anti-woke thing, right? Which to me is just a blanket term to say it is not cis, hetero, white, Christian nationalist. Like it's not that. And so it's anti-us. And so it's, it's woke. Mm-hmm. And this anti-woke is to sort of reestablish us into this like cis, hetero, white, nationalist, Christian sort of structure and all these policies connect to that. And I think about just like, you know, we talked about this, I think, earlier in the season with, um, did we talk to Walter Johnson this season or was it last no, season? But on that episode, right. But on that episode, just like these sort of boogeymans, right, mm-hmm. of like the queer and trans um, youth is a is a boogeyman. This critical race theory is a boogeyman, right? Um, this illegal voter voter fraud is a is a, a boogeyman that is sort of and all they're moving on all of these cylinders at the exact same time, which really are about attacking um, what you mentioned, share this hyper visibility that's happened over the last decade, where queer and trans um, leaders are at the forefront of movements and they are characters on our TV screens in ways that they've never been before, and corporations are. DEI, right? And so all of this is sort of under attack. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's you true. also you introduced this concept earlier that really struck me of believability that yes. does seem to be like really at the core of, of so much of the messaging around this. It's like these people aren't who they say they are. They're pretending. They're acting. And I think this really comes out in the the conflation that happens between drag performance 
and transgender identity. And it's it's a simultaneous attack on both, but there's also a kind of equating what's happening in a drag show with what's happening in someone's everyday life as a trans person, which seems to me to reveal so much of what is going on among the people that are leveling this attack of saying, you know, this this is all just some sort of social contagion and almost like coordinated attack on our traditional patriarchal family values. Yep. Yep. 100%. I mean, we've this the word social contagion are in all of these bills is like you have to prove that you are not susceptible to messaging and social media in order to access healthcare mm-hmm. type of, type of things and it's all this narrative that we don't know who we are. Not Every single one of us doesn't know who we are and we couldn't possibly know who we are until we are a particular age. And then it's a decision to make. Like at 26, you can decide if you wanna be gay or straight or queer or not. And it's like beyond a misunderstanding. It's like we simply can't believe people because we don't don't want that to be a narrative. Um, So so you can't trust kids. They, they don't know who they are, and it's the parent's job to, like, inform them of who they are until they're an age where they can then change that understanding. Mm-hmm. It's harmful. Oh, it's so harmful. And, like, everything that they believe that we are doing, like, we as queer and trans or woke people are doing to our children mm-hmm. is, is actually what, what they're doing to their children by, by like, insisting that they are a particular way mm-hmm. while we are giving some space to understand mm. um, it's messy yeah um kelly you mentioned the like dei and that was one of the most interesting arguments that we heard as as a rebuttal this year of like very deeply conservative republicans saying like i believe in diversity equity and inclusion i don't believe dei dei is this acronym for wokeness mm-hmm. and as if like that it was like the most confusing it's, You just don't know what to do. No. You don't know what, you're sitting there like, how do you, what is happening inside your mind that this is what you decided to verbalize to me? <laughs> and we're banning books on like Rosa Parks. We're banning, you know, it's like I, the, you're not telling yourself, and this is what I mean about this sort of, um, the sensationalizing of this like, his, it's, it's a it's a manufactured hysteria. And most of these electors haven't even wrestled with this beyond the last like six months of the memo that they received from some conglomerate right wing policy shop. And so they don't actually when you sort of talk to them privately, they're like, well, you know, it's not actually, you know, my kid played on the all gender soccer team when they were four. It's not really a thing, but it's it, to get that stamp. Right. And we've heard the leaked recordings of how um, I think it was Tennessee, right, when the Republicans were in private chamber when they were ejecting um, the Democratic representatives arguing with each other about the votes. Right. And there's this real sort of bullying that is happening right from the from the most um, sort of conservative faction inside these state legislatures that is that is creating sort of this like line in the sand on redefining um, you know, conservatism from this sort of, you know, small government, um, you know, structure to this very like heavy handed controlling sort of domineering force that policymakers are taking up 
um, in in the state legislature. So yeah, it's wild. Okay. Yeah, it's wild. I don't know. I, I really don't know how you like Jeff City is a wild place. <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson City is a wild, and by wild I mean a lot of explicitive, like it, like what, like other words I would use in private. <laughs> it is a wild place. Are we putting the e on this episode? Yes, it's wild. If we can um, re- if they can define woke to be what it means. <laughs> wild means a lot of what people understand. I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, so, Shira, I'm going to ask you to bring us in on on the, the calculus that you and other advocates and organizers in this space, in this context, mm-hmm. have to make all the time um, in terms of where you sort of picking your battles, making strategic choices, um, prioritizing. You, you just talked a little bit about how, like, we thought it was going to be sports, and then suddenly there's this switch, and it was around... Use healthcare. Like, how how do you make those decisions? Um, and and given what you shared earlier, like, how does that map on to the harm reduction kind of analysis? That some things you know you're not going to be able to defeat altogether, but you're trying to sort of make them as minimally harmful as possible. Um, yeah, how do how do you go about that? How do you do that? Um, I'm still learning. So I don't think it's like a one size for an organization like promo. We were four to six people at any given year. And so it's a lot of like retraining, relearning, Mm -hmm. staying with it. And Jefferson city is a toxic place. So we don't, we don't keep policy folks or organizers very long when that's the environment they have to face in their own like dehumanizing ways but we we start with um a table of 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 people of stakeholders in the issue so when we believed it was sports we can we convened a very small private working group so that private so that nobody would feel any kind of blame or impetus of decision making um uh authority and we had uh, a coach um, parents of trans kids we had a couple of transgender athletes who who are athletes in schools in Missouri uh, uh, a couple of policy experts a legal expert and um, people who have a stake in the harm that could be done and we said we're gonna fight this and stop it and if we can't where are our lines and we worked together to create four to five scenarios that were written pieces of policy that we agreed that we would have conversations with, with as many of bill sponsors and stakeholders in, in, in elected offices and um, to try to sway the conversations to go in directions that would, that would stop the policy, create a sense of understanding, or reduce the harm of the policy um and we pivoted fast when it became when sports was not what was leading uh the conversation and in the 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 writing on the wall every session um around december and january unfolds as we as elected leaders are given leadership positions and so those leadership positions come with an opportunity to negotiate with their own colleagues what the priority is going to be and what bills are going to get heard. So we know when we have a hearing like the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act, if that was a favor to somebody, a a state 
body is not going to pass the, the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act and give all of our community our rights back while they're trying to take them away mm-hmm. aggressively is like the number two priorities for them. Uh, so like having hearings like that, we know are opportunities to educate, but not and, and get as many stories forward as possible, um, but not move. And we started to see those same things with bills that we were defending as well, like which elected leaders are giving favors, who has more ranking authority to say, um, you know, like it's my bill that has to move versus your bill that has to move. And once we can catch on to the people who who are sponsoring the movement forward or their close colleagues and utilizing the leadership in the opposition to the policies party, so here the Democratic Party, um, we can figure out where the wiggle room is. And for us, it's we kill this policy as fast as we possibly can. And if we know or feel that we aren't able to do that, we have to start chipping away at what our hard nose are like what we have to remove from the piece of policy. Um, and those happen in both a system of uh, rallies or protests or people speaking out and getting loud and um, opportunities in the Senate really to filibuster. And the longer we can draw out the conversation, the more we exhaust the conversation that also has to have had. And, and this year at the, we got to a point where people were in bed that were major elected leaders and uh, that were major leaders in the strategy to pass a bill forward. And their colleagues were willing to say like, we just have to end this because we're tired of talking about this. So what is your line? And I think for us, it's always been present so that we have those opportunities when they're given to us. And honestly, like, as you said um, about how this is so much a game of leadership and campaign trails and how the, the career trajectory of each elected leader wants to exist and how they get those recommendations up their climbing ladder. Um, for us and for, we, we have a very, very large organizational coalition that's run by um, Missouri Equity Education Partnership and us that pulls together anyone with a stakeholder in in children and come to some agreements in in community like that. And and the agreement this time that was a real issue for us was if we we can stop this or can create enough noise that will stop this piece of policy, next year is an election year, a major election year. So do we lose ground faster because people need to bring this conversation of like, I voted, I voted for this piece of policy to get more votes and then promises of what the harm is gonna be that they're gonna cause because they're campaigning. And so that weight for us was so palpable um, and had to take the opportunities ahead of having a special session, ahead of while we were, the attorney general was like losing his arguments in court um, to, to say like, now or never, where's our lines to make this as, as least amount of harm for the smallest population of people possible and we won't stop fighting once we get to that point.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And and I think, you know, you all promo organizations in these coalitions um, really are in, you're in the Capitol, right? You're, you're up there so much. And I send you so much love um, because it is hard. And also this year you showed for, you know, from, from the stance of our organizations and, and, you know, our desires to be, you know, as like, as queer black people, what is our work right inside of our institutions? What is our work to our audiences? Cause we know that like, how do we, how do we live into our values around education and cost to action? Um, from a, from a, from our own self interest and our own understanding of around power, and 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 you all, Missouri had such a fight on their hands because of how many people showed up. Right, it was nonstop rallies, nonstop caravans to the Capitol, nonstop protests, letters to the editor. I mean, on all cylinders, we saw communities respond to this. Um, which I just thought was really powerful, even even in the face of what ultimately passed, um, it was it was the it was the mandate that until the final second, right? We are we are in this fight, um, and so you know we want we always try to leave our listeners with you know what can how can folks be showing up, how can folks plug into this? Um, we are approaching an election year, right? I talk about this on probably every episode. Blake is like every year is an election year, per what Kayla says. That's true. But next year is a presidential one. It's different. It's more money in the pot. Governors on the ballot, um, and uh, the the state legislature is convening right one more time before that November election when all of their names will like when most of their names will be will be on the ballot. So how can folks how can folks plug into this conversation and actually move um, to action and, and be supportive of this fight against uh, against our communities? That's a great question. Well, good for great framing. Um, I think that like participating and get out the vote work now starts with the ballot initiatives that we're collecting signatures on. That we as a movement are collecting signatures on. I'm not we as promo, but we have multiple workers' rights uh, petitions that we're trying to move to the, to the ballot soon. And all of those incremental conversations that we have with as many people as we possibly can, aligning where they're at, and then expanding those conversations to include all of our um, our values start to create more alignment um, and starts to create alignment in spaces that are deeply unfamiliar to who is a transgender Missourian. And we have to keep the most vulnerable in our population safe. So they're not the ones that are going to go do the door knocking. They're not the ones that are going to go make phone calls to people cold calling. So we've got to step up as a community around issues that resonate deeply, like workers' rights or or like uh, abortion health care access or voting protection and expand the conversation with the people we're having um, stand there and sign their lines on the signature about about queer and trans Missourians as well um, is like part one. I think a, a big piece of this is, is funding the people. Like we are now in a situation where rights are, are lost, where the access for so much of us has already just been in community t- to healthcare, but now like even more so our, our right 
to access through insurance or through um, the more like executive institutions uh, is taken away. So, so helping the organizations that are trans-led for the trans community and, and supporting them with money is critical right now. Um, I think KC Transformations is one of the most important organizations. It, it's actually statewide, uh, regardless that it's KC Transformations. It's three states wide, but they care for Black trans women like no one else does in our state, and gets them the resources, the the, the financial resources, and the community and the leadership so that they can thrive. And um, that's not to be remiss in part of this fight is just funding the people. Um, and then I think like a big thing about how everybody showed up consistently in Caravan and we realized how broad the impact could be um, in, in a state like Missouri. Getting together in community is making sure that we prioritize joy and we prioritize connection. We prioritize where we're safe. Um, and I think that that was something that was that is often missing in the policy conversations of how to care for us first. Um, and regardless of who is going to fight that policy and how that policy is fighting, we've got to take care and community and join that care that's being offered and invent new ways and or just more ways to to offer community care. Um, and then as we roll into that election, it's it's getting out the vote. It's making sure that you're registered to vote. You're registering everyone in your neighborhood to vote and you're making sure that they have they, they know trans people live in their neighborhood and the queer people live in the neighborhood and we're not terrifying we are just neighbors and that's ultimately what's going to change the hearts and minds of people to stop this mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um well Shira, thank you so much for for all of that information and and uh the agitations and the shout outs to folks doing important work um, and thank you for for this conversation today. It really um, it has been really a privilege to to be in conversation with you about this and um, to learn from you and share with our audience. Uh, and this is such a um, an urgent fight that we all need to be a part of. So I just appreciate you know how busy you are and that you're juggling a lot. Um, appreciate you taking some time. We're gonna we're gonna let you get back to Camp Indigo Point. In, any final plugs you want to make for Camp Indigo Point before we let you go? I think that I just want to Camp Indigo Point came out of this policy challenge. It came out of losing our rights. It came out of kids having to sit daily in a narrative that their teachers, their adults, their the TV, the radio was telling them they weren't valuable, and to build this haven for them deeply safe container where they took so many of them from, I think we have 27 states of kids this year wow. have live as the only queer trans person in their school. And mm. they are beautifully thriving and building friendships and relationships that I can't, like it's instantaneous. It's in the first five minutes of dropping off at camp. Mm. Uh, and I'm really excited to go back to that world and hope that we have even more spaces for kids that's amazing that's amazing well thank you for all that you do and for taking a little bit of time with us today uh we really appreciate it and we hope folks will take seriously um all of those really really valuable suggestions and invitations that you made 
Um, so thank you again. Really excited for folks to hear this conversation. For our listeners, stick around a few minutes more and we will be right back momentarily to wrap up on Under the Arch. Welcome back. Welcome Welcome back. back. What a like needed, necessary, important, powerful, infuriating. Yes. 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 uh, Conversation, but so grateful for Shira for joining us. And and y'all just don't know the technical difficulties we had to make this episode happen. (laughs) But we were committed and we got it done. And so thanks to Shira for making that happen. Um, And our team, our team, always our team for being nimble in these moments of Wi-Fi failures um, and reschedule. So Johnny, Z, uh, Angelo, and Zoe, just grateful for the team that makes mm-hmm. this all happen. Yes. Um, and and logistical support by a new team member, Valerie Lee. I'm going to shout her out too. Um, so yeah, thank you to the team. And, and Johnny's got his work cut out for him. <laughs> because <laughs> We are splicing some things together. But yeah, really appreciate Shira working, working through those with us and just bringing that brilliance. I feel like, you know, I can feel their just abundant spirit in that conversation that they are yes. really holding so it down for so many people, which is lovely yeah. to hear and, and know more about. Um, yeah, and, and we still want to hear from we still want to hear from our listeners. We, we are almost finishing this season, so but you can give us feedback. We are at Under the Arch Pod on all the big three: uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are not yet on um, the TikTok. The kids is TikTok. Um, the kid, the kids is TikToks. <laughs> we're we're true millennials, um, but you can also email us at Under the Arch Pod at gmail um, and let us know about, you know, topics that what you thought about this episode, what you thought about the season, other conversations you want us to have, because um, we're listening and we mm-hmm. want to make sure that we are covering all the topics that are happening under the arch. Mm-hmm. We only have a few more, if you can believe it, this season, but they're going to be very it's good amazing. ones. So stay tuned. Keep following. You say that every time, but it's true. Every but time. it's true. Have we let you down yet? No, and we won't. Um, and there's one change in the summer programming. One change in the summer program. We were supposed to have a summer party in July. It's already July. It's not happening. It's been postponed. We'll circle back before the end of the season with a new date for the Powerball. Uh, but thank you for all the folks who like have been messaging, who listen to the podcast. It's like, I got my outfit together. I'm ready. <laughs> Just save it. It's coming. Um, but you know we we are small we're a small team we need more time we got a lot of work going on yeah. um so we're going to push it back so that it's a, a real it's really uh amazing in the way that we know it can be yes yes and i will just be waiting for the new date i'm ready to party whenever the party happens and you know action can moment. throw a party yeah i i have no doubt i've seen it witnessed it firsthand so i'm ready our music minute 18 and counting Wretched, thanks for our music minute. Super, super great. Super great. Yes, and keep sending those. We appreciate it. Um, and on that fat note, we're gonna let let you all go. We appreciate you all for listening. We're gonna be back with you soon with more new content. Um, and until then, you have been listening to Under the Arch. Oh, 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 oh.
Thank you.